Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Um, yes, so I'm going to give a, uh, a lecture today sort of summarising our current knowledge on this um, group of, wonderful group of marine reptiles, ichthyosaurs, as well as sort of particular focus of what's happened over the past nearly 20 years or so, and ways we, we can then sort of start to push that um, knowledge boundary and keep going round. So imagine... This is 200 years ago, in, around, in the early 1800s. Imagine you're walking along this wonderful beach. This is Lyme Regis down in the south of Dorset. Um, and you come along a funny-looking rock. And I'm not going to say that the early 1800s was necessarily a particularly backwards time, but they did not have these general knowledge that we have of such things as fossils or many extinct groups like. These concepts had not yet been fully formed by uh, paleontologists and the like. So imagine you come along this funny-looking rock, and then suddenly, as you unearth it, you realize that this is quite a substantial rock. This is Mary Anning, who was one of the collectors around in the early 1800s. So she, initially with her brother back in 1810, 1811, was just literally wandering around on the, on the coast in Lyme Regis. Imagine you come across something like this. I will admit this is not life-size at the moment, um, otherwise it would have been a truly formidable beast. But, so the, whole, the skull of this specimen is approximately a metre long. So in Dorset, as I imagine you've noticed, there are probably, there's very few crocodiles, whales, or anything that big around. So finding something with a skull this, frankly, ridiculous size was uh, pretty much unheard of. And these people, or the people that first looked at it, were not quite sure what they were looking at. Here's how it was first illustrated in 1814 by Everard Holm. This is, this is a new specimen. This is an exciting specimen. It has to go to the best of the best. Um, and Everard Holm was at the Royal College of Surgeons, so he were initially described this thing, um, recognising it was a skull and thinking it was some sort of weird animal that formed a link between various other reptiles and fishes, crocodiles, even mentioning platypuses at various points as well. But this is one of the earliest indications you have of entire groups of animals which are uh, now, now extinct, which are there's no living relatives of them. And through the um, later part of the uh, 1800s, down at Lyme Regis particularly, but indeed across the whole world, a huge number of further specimens of these beasts were found. So this one comes from Somerset. It's around about the same age as this one from Lyme Regis. And we see that these creatures can be preserved in spectacular proportions. We have a whole skeleton here. Yes, it may have been squished flat by all the geological forces, processes, whatever, but you can still see practically every bone preserved in as far as we can tell, the position it was when this animal arrived on the seafloor about 200 million years ago. And even further afield, this is an example from Germany. Again, we find whole complete specimens. This whole specimen is around about six metres long, and it's not even the biggest one. So ichthyosaurs captured the, the imagination of the Victorians the whole world over, where they were finding these truly weird, spectacular things which looked similar to things which were already known about, but in many ways completely different. And so this led to a large diversity of different ichthyosaurs being found based on the various different shapes and sizes that you come with. So these are not to scale, but this is just a snapshot of um, a, well, particularly British ichthyosaurs throughout the Jurassic. So this covers around about 50 million years of history, um, including, so, the, this large Temnodontosaurus up here, which is the big one I just showed you, um, ichthyosaurus over here, 
and weird ones like this Urinosaurus, which looks very much like a swordfish and um, has, well, has a very similar British cousin called Excaliburosaurus, named after Excalibur the sword. Ichthyosaurs also have a long history of interesting names as well. But um, bringing, bringing all these together, it still is a little bit difficult to start working out what ichthyosaurs actually are. So I'm going to start by saying off that these are not dinosaurs. That's the first thing that I need to make clear to anyone that comes up to say, oh, that's a cool dinosaur. Um, ichthyosaurs are interesting because we're not exactly sure where they lie. This is a very simplified general family tree of uh, reptiles. So uh, the reptiles largely split into two main groups. On one side, you've got the lizard side, lizards being a very good example. So they include iguanas, tuataras, and all the snakes that we know today. And then on the other side, you have the crocodile line. So these include, include crocodiles that we have alive today. They include all the dinosaurs that we can think of in our uh, first, my first dinosaur book that we surely have on our bookshelf. But that also includes the huge diversity of birds. Um, birds being an offshoot of these theropod-like dinosaurs, as um, shown by this toy. Uh, ichthyosaurs are probably on the lizard line. Again, some people can start to question that, and where they are, are exactly on the lizard line. There's a lot of um, sort of various subgroups that come off this, this family tree around this area, and where ichthyosaurs are positioned relative to all these other ones are a little uncertain, and I'll come to, uh, back to that sort of a why in a, a short moment. But they are marine reptiles. They have a highly adapted fish-like body shape. They're um, one of the very few uh, groups of marine tetrapods that have gone from land and evolved uh, to live in the water. So uh, superficially, they have either a tuna or dolphin-like body shape, although there are morphological differences. And they were a relatively long-lived group. So they uh, were alive during the Mesozoic. This is more colloquially known as the age of the dinosaurs, from between 250 to 90 million years ago. So they appeared a little before the first dinosaurs are known, but they also went extinct a little bit before the dinosaurs became extinct for reasons which no one, again, is entirely certain about. But I'll come back to possible reasons why a little later in this talk. So the earliest ichthyosaurs that we know of were already highly adapted to an aquatic existence of storts. So this is um, Chalcosaurus here, and this little critter down here is Carterinchus. These are around about 250 million-year-old fossils, both of them known from China. They have various lizard-like um, features, such as a long body, a long tail, a very relatively elongate snout. So that's, sort of, that's what mainly allies them with the, the lizard side of the reptile family. But even at this point, they're certainly known to be aquatic. They have uh, various evidence of paddle-like limbs, a tail bend which supported a tail fin, and um, some evidence to say that there might have been transitional forms which showed the amphibious nature from going on land into the water. And these are very small animals, but they're still already, as I said, highly adapted to an aquatic lifestyle. So they've evolved quite a way towards this uh, new ecology, meaning that trying to ally them with other groups still living on land can be quite difficult. One of the ways that we do know is that they are a uh, definitely aquatic thing, uh, aquatic uh, animal, is the f that we have some very well-preserved fossils, again from China, which preserve, in this case, some embryos preserved within the body cavity of the adults. So these are uh, lizards or a lizard-type animal that are giving birth to live young, and we have quite a few fossils showing 
these very small and conspecific things in the body cavity. I don't know whether there are any in, in the process of being birthed off these ones, but uh, having live birth is a very useful adaptation to uh, an aquatic lifestyle because that frees you from having to come back onto land like turtles do, dragging themselves up beaches and then laying eggs and the like. But within a few, well, relatively few short million years during the Triassic, the ichthyosaurs did diversify quite a large amount. So here are three species I picked out, Utapsosaurus, Mixosaurus, Shonosaurus. So these, this um, spans pretty much the whole range of the Triassic from 250 million years ago through to around about 220 million years ago. The early ones are definitely still elongate, have a very eel-like body form. But in the middle of the Triassic, we start getting a, a much higher diversity, um, both in a more fish-like body plan as well as particularly in the skull. You start to see differences in these animals which are adapted to eating shelled animals, for instance, with round, low, bulbous teeth versus other ones which are more predatory and have much sharper, even ridged teeth. Towards the end of the Triassic, you start getting even uh, bigger forms, so in this case, Shonosaurus, and these are very much the leviathans of the ichthyosaur world, although recent uh, research suggests there might have been even bigger stuff. But So again, this is not to scale, but just to give you an example of the relative sizes of these things. Mixosaurus is around about half a meter to a meter. Utatsosaurus around about two meters. Shonosaurus got up to 15 meters or so. These are very much whale-sized animals. And this is not even the biggest one. We have uh, ichthyosaurs, which are, with most of the body preserved, up to 20 meters or so. But on the transition from the Triassic to the Jurassic, this is starting around 200 million years ago up to 90 in the middle of the Cretaceous, we, sort of, we see a, a, a definite shift in ichthyosaur evolution. Um, most of these ichthyosaurs are essentially variations on a theme. Rather than having the earlier eel-like ichthyosaurs, we are now have very much tuna, very much um, ocean-going fish-like uh, ichthyosaurs. And they're all variations on this theme of uh, ichthyosaurus with a long snout and a crescentic tail fin, ophthalmosaurus with slightly more rotund body, but with a, still with a crescentic tail fin, and platypterygius doing essentially the same things. There are variations in them. Some of them have bigger teeth. Some of them have smaller teeth. And so there is still some amount of ecological diversity. But compared to the Triassic forms, the, the range of shapes we get overall over across the whole body is relatively reduced, or apparently relatively reduced. And we see this sort of thing both in the size itself. So Ichthyosaurus here is around about one and a half to two meters long, maybe up to three. Ophthalmosaurus is about four meters, and Platypterygius can get up to six meters. So these are all around about the same size, give or take a few meters, and certainly much smaller than earlier Ichthyosaurs. So I've mentioned a, a few of these features already, but this is sort of the, the, uh, the main bowel plan for many of these, certainly later ichthyosaurs, but applicable to earlier ones too. So the, as I said, they have a very fish-like, tuna-like shape with a crescentic tail fin to um, propel them through the water. Evidence of a dorsal fin, particularly in the later ones, for stability, much like dolphins do and fish do. Short, powerful tail. Paddle-like limbs for stability and also potentially maneuverability in the water. A long snout for biting things, which is very useful. Uh, and also, famously, uh, a very large eye. These are some of the largest eyes known for any animal, up to 20 centimeters or more in diameter, um, which is likely to be used in a similar way to uh, how whales use echolocation for 
uh, sensing or particularly seeing animals when they're in deep, dark water. So I mentioned that we have a dorsal fin. Here's an example of a particularly excellently preserved uh, ichthyosaur, again from Germany. Um, this dark outline around uh, the edge here is not the preparation stuff. It's not paint that someone has drawn on. It's the original, well, it's the preserved skin of this ichthyosaur, preserved for 180 or so million years. And we have a large number of specimens like that so that we can be very certain on the sort of the general body plan even beyond the skeleton themselves. So that's how, with this tail bend here supporting, we can still know that they have a crescentic tail fin. We know that they have a dorsal fin. We know the extent of the paddle. So we know quite a lot about the general morphology of ichthyosaurs from spectacular fossils for, like this. Um, and here's a, another fun one, uh, another very well-preserved one. This um, arrow here is pointing to the youngest ichthyosaur known in that, I mean young as in, this is an unborn fetus, which is so young that the bones in it have not yet started to become ossified. Um, the position here outside the body is likely due to gases forcing the, the specimen out. And so uh, this one is from Somerset, and so even on our doorstep we have spectacularly preserved fossils. Here's another one of uh, an ichthyosaur um, showing um, the young. In this case, this um, has been interpreted as the, the juvenile or the unborn infant at this stage being in the, um, the birthing tract of this adult pregnant female. So this, ad, this um, ichthyosaur seemingly died in the process of giving birth, unfortunately. And so there's a lot of um, this type of many exceptionally preserved fossils from across the, or across the wide variety of ichthyosaur history. However, despite this, there have been sort of um, ups and downs with re um, related to the, the study of ichthyosaurs. So um, during the uh, Victorian times, it was quite a popular field. And early on, there were a lot of people looking at these new animals, trying to work out what they were, what they were doing. Um, however, it's only really been relatively recently that we started to see a, a particularly large upsurge in ichthyosaur research. And this is one of the main reasons why ichthyosaurs, while being a well-known group, having had a 200-year history of study, still have many questions to answer. There's lots of unknowns related to their lifestyle, their habits, their evolution that is not necessarily quite so true of more studied groups, um, dinosaurs being a, a good example, and other groups of fossilized mammals too. Ichthyosaur diversity goes up and down throughout the, tri throughout the Mesozoic. There seems to be a peak fairly early on and then a steady decline. It's not a particularly good graph to look at if you're sort of saying this is a very successful long-lived group. But we're starting to use new methods um, to try and sort of quantify this, and I'll come back to that uh, a bit later. Here's a, just another quick photo showing, um, or a quick image showing you the, this in, in this case here, we've got a, an ichthyosaur family tree, again, heavily simplified, and just showing some of the variety of morphologies that you get across uh, different types of ichthyosaurs, ranging from the largest ones at about 20 meters long, uh, to the smallest ones around about a meter or so. And so again, you can see there's quite a large variety amongst these relatively early ichthyosaurs, but towards the later end, they tend to end up looking largely the same, at least uh, superficially. 
So there are a couple of questions which um, sort of uh, form the main thrust of what ichthyosaur researchers happen to be looking at at the now. So um, a lot of these slot in with other questions of uh, other fossil groups as well. So how do localities sustain a high diversity of ichthyosaurs? There are a few localities where you get exceptionally preserved fossils, and you get a lot of exceptionally preserved fossils, and you get a lot of different species which look superficially very similar. So how are they competing? How are they not competing? How are they managing to interact with each other? What drove the evolution of ichthyosaur diversity? So again, I just said we see these, this peak fairly early on in the relative decline. But does that show the diversity of all of the different things that ichthyosaurs were doing, all of the different ecologies that they had, all of the different interactions they had, and sizes and things like that? And sort of the fundamental question which I mentioned at the beginning was, where did ichthyosaurs come from? Um, I'm not going to answer that one at the bottom entirely, but I'm going to give at least a brief stab at trying to look at the first two. So here's an example of a, um, a couple of, uh, couple of uh, fossil localities which have preserved ichthyosaurs. So the Lias group from Dorset and the um, Tuarsian, uh, various Tuarsian rocks from Yorkshire and from Germany. And so these form a fairly closely uh, related group of rocks preserving uh, quite a lot of the, the time between 200 and 180 million years ago. And they have a relatively similar diversity of marine reptiles. So ichthyosaurs I've talked about already. There's several um, species of crocodiles, marine crocodiles related to modern crocodiles, but in the water with paddles and um, tail fins and everything to mean everything that helps them swim even better than crocodiles we have today. And also perhaps more weirdly plesiosaurs. These are to, for want of a better ex, uh, explanation, these are your Loch Ness monster type animals. Aubrey's probably staring at me now. Um, with your, their large four flippers, long necks or short necks, and going around eating all the other fishes and anything they can get their mouths onto. So, part of my postdoc has been looking at this specific locality called Strawberry Bank, which is from uh, just outside Ilminster in the middle of Somerset. Um, at this particular locality, we have a large number of um, exceptionally preserved fossils, particularly of these two species of ichthyosaur, Halfiopteryx typicus, Stenopterygius trisicus. They're exceptionally preserved because we have complete, so you can see from these two examples that we have the vast majority of the body there. They're unusual because they're three-dimensionally preserved, so that means that you can rotate these specimens around and see all the angles. A lot of the specimens I've shown you beforehand, you may have noticed, have all been severely flattened uh, and crushed laterally, meaning that you, can, you lose quite a lot of the information, particularly internally. What's also interesting about these is that they are, um, these two specimens particularly are both juveniles, um, so we have a good knowledge of the adults of these uh, species, but the juvenile ones allow us to start looking at the growth of these particular animals. So one of the things I've been doing with this is a relatively new thing in paleontology, or at least has been around for 10, 15, 20 years at most, um, until, of course, you go back to Chris McGowan, who was very much a pioneer in this sort of everything. Um, he was about 20 years ahead of the rest of the field um, of paleontology generally. Um, so CT scanning is using x-rays to uh, essentially fire through the specimen so that you can see the stuff within the rock. Here's a specimen of Excalibursaurus, which is currently in the Bristol Museum. So Chris McGowan in the, uh, in the late 80s put this into the CT scanner in um, the BRI in Bristol. 
And this allows you, it's not a particularly good um, image because of the quality at the time, but this allows you to see um, within the rock. So you can see here, this is the main skull that's shown on the rock outside. But within the rock, you've then got this part here, which is essentially where the skull has been butterflied and spread open. And so this is one of those instances when CT scanning can tell you a lot more information um, than the, you can see on the surface of the rock. And this is very useful because you don't need to necessarily go through, cut all of the rock away to find this out. You can start using this technique um, to do exploratory paleontology on specimens. Times have changed and technologies have moved on. So with the CT scanning that I've been doing at the University of Bristol, we're now able to get much higher resolution, more complete data from uh, these animals, these specimens. So here's an example of Halphiopteryx again. This is showing the lateral view, again showing the very large eye. They're especially big in the juveniles because juveniles are particularly weird. And it's great because you can then um, cut through this, uh, this specimen at any point you want. You can rotate it, see any view you want. And you can start not just looking at the osteology, the bones and the shape of the bones, which is useful in doing the taxonomy, describing them, working out what species we have. But you can also start filling in the gaps that aren't preserved anymore. So uh, in particular, looking at soft tissues. And um, what I've been doing more, more recently is starting looking at, um, well, previously I'd looked at, uh, with a master student, looking at the soft tissues of the, the brain case. So this is, again, that specimen of Halphiopteryx. Um, this purple shape down here is at least the dorsal surface, but part of the brain or the shape of the brain within the skull of this ichthyosaur. Uh, and so um, here you've got relatively large uh, olfactory bulbs, so very good for smelling. Here you've got a, a very large optic lobe, um, very good for seeing. And at the back, you've got quite a, a good or a large area for the general 3D processing. So one of the things we came across or we came, we came to deduce with this uh, particular set of CT scans was that ichthyosaurs, even in the juveniles, were relatively agile, adapted, and active hunters quite, as it might be expected from large eyes and the like. This is not a, this is different to a, a whale, um, whale brain, for instance, because of the greater uh, presence put on olfactory uh, and optical sensing rather than sonar, for instance. More recently, I've been looking at reconstructing the internal musculature of these animals. So here's um, a couple of examples of looking at the muscles which close the jaw on an ichthyosaur. So here's a difference of two ichthyosaurs. And all of the muscles are compressed at the back, and there's still an eye in the way. So trying to fit muscles that will close the jaw is um, proving to be a little bit difficult with that respect. But it's these sorts of things that allow us to try and work out how the skulls function differently. So um, we can, the most simple thing we can get from this is the amount of forces that the muscles were able to generate, the bite force of each of these different ichthyosaurs and how they compare to each other and other animals. And then by uh, combining that with the more general shape of the skulls, we can start looking at how they might be adapted to slightly different ecologies for uh, feeding on different things versus different actions of the skull, for instance, um, and what potential food that means they might be doing or what they might be doing to prevent excessive amounts of competition between them. 
So that's a, an instance of one of the things uh, I've been doing during postdoc and with the master students earlier. Another thing that's fairly recently come out um, at the end of last year was trying to work out um, how ichthyosaurs are interrelated. So this, um, this diagram here should essentially be treated as a, a, family, uh, a family tree of ichthyosaurs with almost all known species. So there are currently 115 or so valid species in there. This includes quite a large number of them. Uh, and so closely related ones are the ones with the closest branches on this tree. Uh, and the further back you go, the older you get in general terms. So this has been quite an arduous journey because to create this has been using uh, comparative morphological data. So essentially you look at the shape of all ichthyosaurs, not the general, just the general shape, but also including the shape of all the individual bones, how they interlock or connect with each other, and as much data of that as you can, uh, can get, <clears throat> which is quite an arduous journey when you're trying to do it for 100 odd different species, some of which are very... Um, and it's quite difficult to get data on. And so using um, more recent computational techniques, this allows us to process this relatively large amount of data that wouldn't have been possible only a few years ago. But one of the joys of having a family tree like this is it then allows you to start plotting the trends and the differences that occur across ichthyosaurs during their 160 million years of evolution. So... Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have this uh, graph of ichthyosaur diversity where there seems to be a peak in the fairly early on in the Triassic and then a general decline throughout the, the rest of ichthyosaur life. But this, just, this is essentially just counting the number of species that we find at various different points in time. What we can do in a different way is, um, rather than just counting species, we can start to use the, the shape data we've got in making the tree to compare the morphology and how that changes, how many different morphotypes, how many different shapes of ichthyosaurs we have at various different points as well. We can also start looking at um, the evolution of uh, various different traits, so morphological traits across the tree. So this is um, looking at body size in its uh, for instance, and so by plotting body sizes for each of these individual species, you can then try and work out where on the tree um, there are specific high changes, high rates of change in body size versus low rates of change in body size. So one of the things we get across from this is that there seems to be quite a large number of high rates indicated here by the red colors in these, um, on the branches of this tree here. Whereas later in ichthyosaur evolution down here, we get a lot more blue, the cold color, suggesting that ichthyosaur evolution does seem to slow down. This particularly occurs across the, the boundary from the Triassic into the Jurassic. So this seems to be, this seems to chime with what we saw earlier, where this is a point where we get a lot less diversity of ichthyosaurs and everything seems to end up looking the same. So if you look the same, it doesn't, you don't have to change quite as quickly. One of the other things that um, we can do with ichthyosaurs, because we have such a complete and exceptionally preserved fossil record, this is coming back to um, the skin outline that we see on this, uh, this particular specimen, as well as many others, is that we can start to reconstruct the morphology of these animals more generally. So I've been doing this in particular with a PhD student of mine, um, Susanna Katara, who's at the University of Bristol. Um, although it started before that as a um, project from me and from a master student. So we've been able to use these data across a large variety of ichthyosaurs to start 
attempting to reconstruct 3D models of these different species. And because we have such exceptional fossils from throughout the whole of ichthyosaur evolution, um, we can reconstruct it for several different species with a high degree of accuracy. So one of the things we've been uh, attempting to test with this is looking at the efficiency of ichthyosaur swimming, or the, more specifically, the, the efficiency of the ichthyosaur body shape for moving through water. So we've got these 3D models. We can then use a series of um, engineering techniques or techniques developed for engineering, specifically computational fluid dynamics. So this is essentially uh, a simulation technique where you put your 3D model into a, a computer and you flow some virtual water past your 3D model and then that can tell you a lot about the, the effect of the shape of your model on the flow of the water. So in particular, you can get out uh, the amount of drag that different bodies um, create. You can get to the amount of turbulence they create, lifted and various other things. Um, so we've been uh, particularly focusing on um, the drag caused by the shapes of ichthyosaurs. One of the great things is that you do get wonderfully colorful plots out like this. So here is a, an early ichthyosaur here. This is Utatsusaurus. So this is one of the more elongate eel-like forms. And here is an Othamosaurus, so uh, one of the later more dolphin or tuna-like forms. Um, this is very much ongoing work, so I don't have too much to say about it. But what we're seeing is that we do see some evidence for there being uh, a relative inc increase in efficiency between the earlier ichthyosaurs and the later ichthyosaurs, at least in, by some measures, although we're currently unpicking all of the various different strands related to body size, shape, and all of that. Um, and so the trends in the, the morphology seem to echo, uh, to a certain extent, the trends that you see during the evolution of whales, when they also go from a terrestrial ancestor into a, an aquatic, highly aquatically adapted uh, modern form. Um, so there seems to, the drag coefficients themselves remain constant, but through the evolution of ichthyosaurs, there seems to be a general reduction in the a drag that uh, are caused on ichthyosaurs. And this sort of couples with a, a swimming speed increases, which have been found before as well. So this does seem to be evidence that ichthyosaurs are changing their morphology morphology to become more highly adapted to a marine uh, marine way of living. Yeah, so... Um, uh -huh, that's where we're going. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that um, particularly during the um, Jurassic and then in the, into the Cretaceous, ichthyosaurs generally had a very similar body plan. I also mentioned that it's not entirely certain uh, why ichthyosaurs became extinct and uh, particularly why they became extinct around about 25 million years or so before dinosaurs, plesiosaurs, and so many other groups became extinct at the end of the Cretaceous. Recent research by um, colleagues, and um, particularly Val Fisher, started to elucidate possible ideas of that, um, in particular using the relatively sparse Cretaceous record. So while I've shown you quite a lot of um, images of very well-preserved ichthyosaurs, there's also a lot of ichthyosaurs which are preserved just as teeth, which is um, very much towards the opposite end of the completeness spectrum and much more difficult to try and work with. Although, by using uh, a large sampling of teeth, um, Fisher et al., as shown here for a few years ago, have started using um, 
morphotypes, generic um, shapes of teeth to start uh, categorizing the different ecologies, the different forms of ichthyosaurs that were present during the um, last few tens of million years of their existence. So even though outwardly the body form of all these ichthyosaurs is largely similar, we do still get um, different ecologies formed by these ichthyosaurs. So we get, at the top of the food chain, we get apex predators. So these are particularly large ichthyosaurs with very large teeth that were able to eat pretty much whatever they wanted to. We get a large population of generalists. So these are not quite so large ones with uh, somewhat more variable teeth, but relatively smaller ones that were not eating the other bigger organisms, bigger fishes, bigger marine reptiles that were out there, but were able to eat a high diversity of smaller fishes, squids such as bedlam knights and um, other things that were swimming around in the ocean. But um, at the bottom here we have these ones with the especially small teeth which were almost certainly highly adapted towards these the soft prey that you get like the various squid-like things that were around there, around in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. And so by using and charting these various different morphologies of just using teeth across the, the latter part of the Jurassic and into towards the Cretaceous where ichthyosaurs finally do become extinct, um, the work of Fisher and Richter have showed that there does seem to be this noticeable decline in ichthyosaurs across uh, a few tens of millions of years during the Cretaceous. But this is relatively short-lived over about... Um, well, less than 50 million years or so. You do get peaks in the um, end of the Jurassic and in the beginning of the Cretaceous, suggesting that at this time there were quite a lot of different ichthyosaurs doing various different things, but from then on it was essentially all downhill. And then while this shows that ichthyosaurs were becoming much less diverse and were sort of on, on their way out towards that, there's still not an entire consensus as to why ichthyosaurs became extinct at exactly that point. Various people have suggested that it could be due to other related mass extinctions at about the same time. Uh, if ichthyosaurs weren't directly affected by that, then certainly quite a lot of their prey um, were severely affected by these extinctions, becoming much less diverse, much less numerous. And a few other things go extinct at the same time for possibly the same reasons. But um, this sort of uh, long drawn out goodbye is more, or has been, in this uh, particular research, has been thought to be affected by the uh, general climatic changes during the earlier part and into the middle of the Cretaceous, around about 120 to 90 million years ago or so. Oh, I'm back to this graph. Um, but this doesn't necessarily chime with this, this view of ichthyosaur diversity. This plot we were just seeing a moment ago was uh, very much around this bit here at the last... Uh, quite a last third or so of ichthyosaur evolution, but their decline does seem from this to have been going on much longer. However, using the morphology that we've collected in looking at phylogenies of ichthyosaurs for at a long time by collecting all of the morphological data, the story is broadly the same. Ichthyosaurs do, send, do seem to be on the, the long decline, but the peak is very much more towards the end of the Triassic, and in the Jurassic, the decline is not necessarily quite as substantial has has previously been thought. So with this very noticeable shift in morphology that occurs between the Triassic and into the Jurassic, 
there does seem to be a substantial bottleneck in ichthyosaur evolution going on that time. But the diversity of ichthyosaur is maintained. Um, the morphological diversity as depicted in, in, this grand, in this graph is not entirely lost, but is very much in a, a different morphological region. Um, and this is maintained substantially right until the middle of the Cretaceous. There's, compared to earlier ichthyosaurs, there's not a huge amount of loss until right towards the end of their diversity. And so, yes, this again chimes with the, um, the evolution of rates, uh, again, using body size that we see across ichthyosaur evolution. There's a lot going on in the, the Triassic, um, where we get to a relatively high rate of change across very different um, ichthyosaur taxa. But during the Jurassic and the Cretaceous, the rates do seem to be much slower. And this seems to be a much longer trend than has previously been thought by various other people. And this is another graph showing, this is quite an exciting graph because it has a large number of lines. But this is uh, not looking at the, the rate of change in um, body size uh, as I did in the previous tree. This is looking at the rate of change in morphological characters across the evolution of ichthyosaurs, going from the earliest ichthyosaurs on the left to the later ones on the right. And the picture becomes a little bit more muddied when you look at this. This is, again, very new research, so we're still trying to pick apart the exact um, reasonings or the, the whys and wherefores behind it. But there's a much higher rate of evolution very early on in ichthyosaurs. This is perhaps related to the exploration of the new niche. If they have only just moved into the marine realm, then this is following the end Permian mass extinction. There's a lot of more, there's a lot of space that they can explore. They can go into find all these different ecologies. Whereas later on, when there's an increased amount of competition or when ichthyosaurs have become more specialized to particular ecologies, particular feeding patterns, particular size groups, for instance, the rate of change becomes relatively less. And this, to a certain extent, decreases throughout the rest of ichthyosaur evolution as they fit into their niche more generally and don't necessarily need to change too much. The relatively high rate shown right at the end here is most likely due to lack of data rather than a sudden uptick, a sudden surge or uptick right at the end. But one of the reasons we're still struggling to do this because, or struggling to make sense of this, is because this particular um, high early rates is very much dependent on how you end up sorting your groups. Whether you um, split groups into certain ways, you either get a, the earliest bin here being the highest rates, or it, if you um, split them differently, then you can end up with the second or third bin being the highest rates. So ichthyosaur evolution is not necessarily just a story of early high rates and then a decline. It could be a, it could equally be a relatively brisk start and then suddenly finding their, their um, footing fairly soon after before an eventual decline. So that gives a general summary of a few points which I've been working on during my PhD and postdoc, as well as a few, what a few other people have been doing related, related to their um, recent research. Um, the last few slides um, will largely be looking at where ichthyosaurs fit in, but also what the potential questions for the future of ichthyosaur paleontology could be. So as I mentioned, ichthyosaurs are part of this, this group of reptiles that while probably on the lizard line, their exact position are not particularly known. So here are the ichthyosaurs in the group Ichthyosauromorpha. They're related to sauropterygians and the Latosauria. Um, 
Here we have various groups of lizards and snakes and mosasaurs that also went into the water. Here we have a high diversity of different crocodile groups that re, um, went into the water again. And here we have quite a large number of birds and mammals. So the thing to remember is that these are, um, apart, yes, these are all groups of what's known as a tetrapod. So tetrapods are four-limbed things. And they first evolved in the Carboniferous around about, or a little earlier, around about 360 million years ago as land-based animals. So all these different groups have gone from a terrestrial land-based ancestor and returned to the water at very different levels of success. And they've all done it separately. So there's something about the uh, living in water which is highly attractive to so many different groups and um, the different ways in which they do it at various different points in time. And one of the things to notice is that in several cases, um, the general morphology and the general ways in which these animals have adapted to this life in water can be very similar. So a particular example is looking at whales and dolphins, as well as comparing them to ichthyosaurs, and even some of the mosasaurs and crocodiles, which have all adap adapted and developed very fish-like body forms. They've got a powerful caudal tail for propulsion, they've got a dorsal fin, they've got paddle-like limbs. And these various things do reappear across many of the other groups as well. So this is an example of what's known as morphological convergence, where disparate and not necessarily closely related groups have all evolved the same shape, either general shape or more specific in the case of limbs, as an answer to essentially the same problem, paddles being a good way to power your way through the water or for providing stability, for instance. Uh, here's a couple of examples. Um, here's an ichthyosaur, here's a plesiosaur, and here's a whale showing the ancestor of, here in this case, a, a basal lizard-like reptile. Here's a, an early uh, whale ancestor. And the, the sort of the trajectory of evolution between these different groups is highly convergent. They're, it's very similar, and the morphologies resultant that you get out at the end are all very similar. The color codings in this are showing the same bones. So for instance, here is the humerus right at the top with the radius and ulna in orange, various different colors of orange. And these bones are recognizable across the evolution of these various different groups. And then as a final instance, um, uh, it was mentioned that I helped out with a documentary earlier this year, Attenborough and the Sea Dragon. So I'm just going to use this as a sort of a fairly brief case study of why um, paleontology desperately needs new specimens as a way of increasing science, as well as all the different things you can get out of one relatively benign-looking ichthyosaur specimen that this guy, Chris Moore, happened to find on a beach when he was wandering around one day. So I first became involved in this uh, about two years ago now, shortly after Chris had found initially just the, the forelimbs of this beast. Um, so this was pre uh, this was when they were first consulting and trying to get ideas before the, the program was um, properly brought up by the BBC. But, um, so Chris found this relatively exciting specimen um, found on there, and it's quite wonderful in that it preserves a, a lot of the data. So here's an example of one of the outputs you get from CT scanning. So we CT scanned the, the specimen down at Southampton. 
And then using computers, we can essentially do advanced coloring in around the bones in the rock to try and pull them out, separate them to show the, the completeness that we get there. So here we've got part of the, the vertebral column. Here's the series of vertebrae. Here's some neural spines, which is uh, for muscle attachment and keeping the vertebrae all together and fairly straight. And here in the pinkish color, we have a lot of ribs. So around this region, we have quite a lot of breakage, which was used as evidence for potential predation, as well as could be induced by the preservation um, geological forces crushing the specimens, but they seem to be fairly consistently broken. But this is only part of the specimen. We did manage to scan pretty much the whole thing and then reconstruct um, as much of the specimen as we could. So I, I have to admit that there, there is a little bit of a cheat going on there. Because ichthyosaurs have such a ridiculously huge number of um, vertebrae, backbones, uh, around about 170 or potentially 250 in some species, it does become quite arduous to try and reconstruct this whole lot. So we used a sort of trick by only reconstructing a few of them and repeating them. But because they all look the same, it effectively comes to the same difference. But um, we've managed to reconstruct the whole three-dimensional skeleton of this animal, which is, I think, a first for ichthyosaurs based on um, uh, well, no, one of the first for ichthyosaurs, certainly based on CT scans. Many other specimens that you'll see mounted in museums are often based on several specimens put together. Sadly, this beastie was missing a head, spoiler alert, um, which did curtail some of the things we wanted to do because we wanted to use some of the techniques I mentioned earlier about looking at skull, doing muscle reconstruction, trying to recreate the feeding um, prowess of this animal. Well, we've got limbs here, uh, both fore and aft. We've got uh, a relatively complete body, including tail bend and the whole shape of this animal, which allowed us to reconstruct it very completely. Here is um, Fian Smithick talking to um, Dave during some of the filming. So Fian was able to see, Fian helped out in the dig, was able to see when it came out that there was also skin preserved. So this specimen was found in Lyme Regis. It's practically on the doorstep. And we are still getting the exceptional preservation that allows us to look at um, the soft tissue anatomy of this, uh, this animal. In this case, Fian was able to look on using a scanning electron microscope to see very high resolution. He was able to find various soft tissue structures suggesting what color patterning this particular ichthyosaur would have had finding, much like whales and fishes today, that it showed evidence of being countershaded with a darker top and a relatively lighter uh, bottom. Because we didn't have a skull, we had to look elsewhere for a sort of wow fact bit. Unfortunately, we, um, at Cardiff Museum, there's this rather spectacular other ichthyosaur specimen. This is a Temnodontosaurus. The whole skull is around about uh, almost two meters long. The whole animal would have been very close to 10 meters in total. This is a big ichthyosaur with a very powerful bite. We could again create a 3D model, um, not using CT scanning in this case, but using photogrammetry, taking loads of photos from lots of different angles to create um, a 3D surface model, and use that to recreate the volume available for muscles. So trying to calculate the bite force of this and the feeding mechanism of this relatively large ichthyosaur. Um, and so this is uh, largely the, the, 
the focus of my colleague um, Emily Raythold, who's at the University of Bristol, who came out with the, the wonderful quote during the documentary itself, David saying that, making um, the point that this was very much the king of the Jurassic Oceans, but of course, it, very could also, it could also be the queen of the Jurassic Oceans. Sadly, we don't know whether it was male or female, but either in both cases, it's definitely badass. And so um, that shows uh, quite a lot that quite a lot can be brought out just from a single specimen. But as shown here by this uh, image of the Marine Reptiles Gallery in the Natural History Museum, we have a huge number of ichthyosaur specimens available to us. Each of these cabinets holds a different ichthyosaur specimen. And there are many, many, many more beside these. So while ichthyosaur paleontology is certainly increasing and has been over the, past, over the recent years, there are still many more questions that we can be asked with the addition of more specimens or more study of old specimens, which various people, including some in this room, are going along and around at the moment. But I hope that I've given you a, a, an interesting enough snapshot to show that ichthyosaur paleontology is reaching the, well, hopefully not zenith, but it's certainly on its way up and up and that there will be many, many more exciting things to come in the hopefully near future. Uh, here's another example showing Steve Etch's collection um, from Kimbridge. This is a relatively new one. Uh, it's formed a museum which only opened a couple of years ago. So here's an ichthyosaur, which is a new species. Uh, somewhere in the cabinet over here, there's an ichthyosaur, which is probably a new species. Uh, over here, there's another ichthyosaur, which is probably a new species. Um, this is one guy collecting over about 30, 30 or 35 years in one place down, again, in Dorset, Cambridge Bay. So even though we have had 200 years of study, there are still many more finds to have and hopefully many more people to keep finding them out. So I'd like to end there. Um, as a last thing, I'd like to thank all of the various people who've um, consulted with me, talked to me, thrown things at me, scolded me, and all the other things that kept me going over the years. Uh, and I would like to thank you very much for, for listening. <laughs>